Welcome back to Expanding Eyes. Every time I open one of these episodes by saying, well, in our last episode, I start to have the feeling that I'm in some ways podcasts in our time are recreating some aspects of the old radio dramas of the 1930s of my parents' uh, generation. And that's not a bad thing in the way that I would think about it. Uh, We have lived through, especially those of us as old as I am, an intensely visual age in terms of electronic mass communications revolution. Television, then video games and the video aspect of things. But now with podcast, we have something that is based on oral, on the spoken voice, and that seems to me to have lots of new possibilities, and we'll see, we'll explore that and see where it goes. At any rate, in our last episode, we were talking about how in the high Middle Ages, beginning around maybe 1100 CE or so, the common era, a new kind of love, the creation of an idealized romantic love tradition, was born in southern France, the Provençal region, with the troubadours, and spread across Europe uh, and became known as the courtly love tradition. And The reason for our mentioning it here is that Dante, although he was in love with a real woman, Beatrice Portinari, nevertheless, when he put this love in literature, he did so using as a vehicle the conventions of the courtly love tradition. And we talked about what those were, this intense idealization both of romantic love itself and of the beloved, usually a woman, so much so that at least in the imagery, whether the poet actually meant it or not or was simply speaking this way as a type of literary game, and there, it is ambiguous how far that was the case. But at any rate, the imagery said that love was virtually an alternative religion of Eros, the classical god of love, and with the beloved in the place of a kind of redeemer figure. And curious as that may seem uh, to us, this tradition was enormously popular for several centuries, all the way down to something like Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, where Romeo and Juliet speak back and forth to each other in one scene, two Italian sonnets of love that is, it comes off on stage as part of their dialogue, but they're actually speaking courtly love sonnets of love to each other. The idealization of love as this holy grail type of experience that 
even if it ends tragically, if you have had it in your life, you have a fulfillment that nothing else can give to you. And the idealization of the woman, including the ideal of service. This was not a love just of self-gratification, but of giving in the form of serving the beloved. And our vestigial traditions of what we call, we still call chivalry. Shall I open the door for a woman? Shall I give her the seat on the bus? Which are pretty vestigial indeed. It's a come down from, if you really love me, go slay that dragon. But the ideal of a love that is not selfish, but devoted to the other, again, with quasi-religious overtones, at least in the conventions, whatever was true in the actual experience of it. And as always, when I taught, and now I have simply imported this into the podcast, always in terms of reading literature, the idea is to use works of literature that are other to us because they come from another time and in some ways are so enigmatically, strangely different from us. Trying to understand where they came from, what kind of otherness is really involved here, rather than immediately just judging according to modern standards. But it is often a struggle, and out of that struggle, maybe we'll learn something about ourselves. And there are several things to struggle with about the courtly love tradition. One of them is that very idea of service to a beloved, usually female. And how sexist is that? We talk about putting women on a pedestal, and that's not a very popular thing in a lot of quarters these days because it is a kind of sexism that seems to idealize the woman, but only by virtue of imprisoning her in a kind of a male game after a while. But behind it, in the Middle Ages, was the idea that instead of self-gratification, what you were seeking through this devotion, through this commitment, was a self-transformation. Your struggles and sufferings in love will teach you, will deepen you, will ennoble you, will bring out the best in you. And when we put it that way, we think, hmm, well, maybe there is something here after all. There is another aspect of the courtly love tradition that is even more other and enigmatic and a challenge to us. And that is that this is love outside of the tradition of monogamous marriage. It was often what at least the modern label would be adulterous, extramarital, though not in a sort of one-night stand sort of way. Now, there was a historical practical reason that no longer holds for us. 
This is courtly love, love of the elite upper classes of the aristocratic courts. And among that class of people in medieval times, marriages were arranged. You didn't choose someone, fall romantically in love, marry, and live happily ever after because marriage was a practical affair. It was an economic affair and it was a political affair, often to seal a certain type of alliance. So there was no question of having a romantic love ideal within the framework of that type of marriage, so it had to be projected outside uh, onto someone outside. And this was rationalized in the tradition. The uh, chaplain of the court of one of the great women of the Middle Ages, Eleanor of Aquitaine, the chaplain Andreas Capellanus, great sounding name until you realize with disillusionment that it's really just Latin jazzing up of the name Andy the Chaplain. But at any rate, Andreas Capellanus wrote a whole treatise, a sort of do-it-yourself treatise on the art of courtly love. And very kindly and conveniently, if you're interested in going to look up how you go about doing this, he sums up the whole book towards the end in 31 precepts that are numbered. And the very first of them is, marriage is no excuse for not loving. And what do we think of that? Well, we think that's problematic if we have the ideal of conventional marriage. And I am not trying here to editorialize and uh, express an opinion or even imply an opinion one way or the other, but again, to widen our horizons and think about things. Often in my teaching of older literature, I have to point out that monogamous marriage is in many ways a kind of a modern middle-class ideal. If you read the Old Testament, People like Abraham and Solomon did not have this ideal binding them. Solomon had either 700 wives and 300 concubines or 300 wives and 700 concubines. I can never remember which way it was, but who cares? This guy has a thousand women and as king of Israel, he was thoroughly approved of in terms of what God felt about this. The only thing God didn't like about that was that one of these women got Solomon to build altars to heathen gods, and that was cause for disapproval, but not the 1,000 or whatever women. And it simply wasn't an ideal that is kind of universal, built into nature or something. And there's a challenge there for us to think about. Uh, here in the courtly love tradition, in a little before Dante's time and inherited by Dante, we don't have arranged marriages, but still that business of, okay, when it was arranged, it sets up a barrier 
the woman and the courtly love relationships was often inaccessible. It was sometimes just inaccessible in the very easy sense that uh, she simply said no. She simply held herself off from the beloved. When a writer of Elizabethan sonnets, for example, speaks of a cruel mistress, what he really means is a woman who keeps saying no and not giving in, and how cruel can you be? But that idea of love at a distance, ideal love at a distance, raises, again, something to think about in terms of getting an education through the imagination. Can love be ideal only if it's at a distance? We rather easily, and I'm just trying to be challenging here, we rather easily have this ideal of you fall in love, you get married, you live happily ever after. But even in pop culture, there are indications that in practice, something happens. Do you have that ideal romantic feeling after a while when you actually live day by day with that person, including, in our case, raising children with that person? And what do you think of Prince Charming when he leaves the cap off the toothpaste and doesn't put the toilet seat down? And this is not just my cynicism. In the Sondheim musical, Into the Woods, the happy ending with Prince Charming occurs halfway through the musical, and then in the other half, it all goes downhill. He turns out to be a philanderer, etc., etc. You know, how much does that kind of idealized love depend on some kind of distancing? Interesting, if troubling, perhaps, to think about. Well, in Dante's case, the distance was kind of the ultimate distance, you could say. Beatrice died. And this is true in real life. Beatrice died in the year 1290. So therefore, when the narrative is supposed to have taken place in 1300, she has died and been in among the highest reaches of heaven for close to a decade. And... She is the one, the context for all of this, to remind you, is that Virgil has come to be Dante's rescuer from the dark wood of error. But Virgil says, I have some good news and some bad news. The good news is I can be your guide out of here. The bad news is you have to go through hell itself to get out. And Dante says, hell no, I won't go. And balks like a mule, and Virgil has to play the trump card that he plays over and over again in the narrative of the Divine Comedy. Well, okay, you should want to do this for the love of God, and you're not good enough for that, clearly. You won't do it for me because I urge you to, but your girlfriend, Beatrice, sent me to rescue you. Won't you do it? For her. And he recounts, Virgil recounts to Dante how this all began, which was not with Virgil himself, 
It began up in heaven with the Virgin Mary, the great figure of mercy in the Roman Catholic tradition, then and to this day. So appropriately, beginning with Mary, who sees that Dante is going downhill fast, literally and figuratively, and goes to a second woman. I always refer to uh, the heavenly relay race of women here. There were three female figures, each going to the next one to initiate what amounts to a kind of rescue party for Dante. And of course there's three of them because everything in Dante always occurs in threes or nines, three times three. So the Virgin Mary sees Dante in trouble and out of mercy goes to St. Lucy who is only in the relay race simply because of her allegorical name. The name Lucy actually means light. The great uh, modern novelist James Joyce named his daughter Lucia because Joyce went blind in midlife. And light is the symbol, as we will see, no pun intended, throughout the Divine Comedy, but especially when Dante visits heaven in the Paradiso. So the Virgin Mary goes to Lucy, who goes in turn to Beatrice and says words to the effect of, uh, your boyfriend's in trouble, we need to rescue him. And Beatrice leaves heaven and goes down to the first circle of hell, which we are going to soon visit, the circle known as limbo, an actual concept in Catholic belief, more on that later, and stands on the floor of hell, admittedly only the first circle of hell, but on the floor of hell itself, with tears in her eyes, begging Virgil to go and rescue her beloved Dante. It's only a line, really, in the text, but I always urge people when I teach the poem, there are moments where a single line in Dante simply stops you dead and rivets you with the sheer vividness of the image and the emotional impact of it, and to me, this image of Beatrice with tears in her eyes, standing on the floor of hell, going down to hell itself as Orpheus went after his beloved in classical mythology and begging Virgil to go and guide Dante, is an amazing image which has an even greater emotional impact if you know the theological boldness of it because there was a teaching that grew up within earlier Christianity about the nature of heaven. People sometimes have the idea that Christianity came out of the mouth of Christ and was taught and was therefore picked up by the disciples and passed on through the institution of the church. And we have all the answers there directly from the mouth of Christ himself. But in fact, that is not true at all. A great deal of belief, a great deal of theology, including very central things like the doctrine of the Trinity, are not there in 
the teachings of Jesus or the New Testament except by the interpretation of certain people. And often it took centuries of argument, the Trinity is a case in point, for the church finally to come to some sort of final consensus about this is what the truth is, this is what we must believe about this subject. Now, there are many subjects that the New Testament simply does not deal with at all, and therefore questions arise. And individual theologians hold church councils often bitterly arguing over these questions, not to mention a great deal of political backstabbing going on, in order to come up with answers about unanswered questions. And behind this image of Beatrice standing with tears in her eyes in hell is the idea that it is challenging implicitly, and that is, okay, heaven. Heaven is defined as perfect bliss, perfect happiness. However much you suffered on earth, you don't have to suffer even for a split second ever again for all eternity any longer. Heaven is perfect, and therefore it is perfect happiness. But what if you love somebody? You're in heaven, but you love somebody that is down in hell. If you still love that person, you won't be able to be happy in heaven, because how can you be happy if that your beloved person is down there suffering for all eternity in hell? So the teaching grew up and became traditional that the blessed souls in heaven no longer care. They are emotionally cauterized in some way from caring about anyone who is damned down in hell. We'll see this actually dramatized in a famous episode of the Purgatorio. To us, that seems rather inhuman and callous, but you can see the problem that it was trying to solve in the only way that people could come up with. So theologically speaking, Beatrice should not be having tears in her eyes. She should not be upset. It's okay for her to care about Dante because he's actually not damned yet. He's about two inches away from it and going down fast, but the jury is still out on Dante. He has not totally damned his soul yet. Therefore, care is still appropriate, but it's the emotional pain that is there in those tears that is a bold move on Dante's part. And this sets up the pattern for Dante. He always goes right for the difficulties in Christian belief. Think what you will about his Catholicism. It is not a comforting system that sweeps all of the difficulties under the rug. I think we should give Dante credit for going for the difficulties, and we'll see this over and over again as we go through the text, and wrestles with them as best he can. And uh, Beatrice still cares enough to be in pain to go down to beg Virgil, and of course, well, now, you know, now it's a guilt trip. Uh, I don't want to do this. This is the last thing I want to do is to go down through the mouth of hell. 
But, you know, if Beatrice went all the way down there and cried, it's the least I can do. So, oh well, and off he goes. <coughs> that is the end of the canto and the beginning of Canto Three. If you're beginning to wonder about the pace of all this, I do promise you that we will pick up our pace. We're not going to talk about all of the Divine Comedy and the rate at which we go through cantos will increase after the first half dozen cantos in which there's a good deal of background to establish. So don't worry, this is not going to take until hell freezes over. In fact, that was a in-joke because in Dante's version of hell, it's already frozen over at the bottom of it. But at any rate, <clears throat> we move to Canto Three, where Dante sees the sign, Dante the character, sees the famous sign over the gate of hell. He and Virgil are standing there, and the very first nine lines of Canto Three of the Inferno are the sign itself speaking as if it were personified, or rather, to be more accurate, speaking as if hell itself were personified and speaking. And what hell says via the sign is, first of all, justice created me. The justice of God has created the pit of torment that you are about to enter into. Justice created me. And here is another thing for us to wrestle with and maybe educate our imaginations through the wrestling. Justice. I happen to be recording this on the day after the verdict was rendered on the murder of George Floyd. And that gives it to me, and perhaps to you, a particular resonance. What is justice? And Dante, the character, reading this sign, he hasn't seen the torments in person yet, but he knows basically what he's going to see down there. Dante, the character, simply blurts out. He reads the sign and he sort of involuntarily blurts, Master, these words I see are cruel. At least that's how it's translated in the translation I used to teach from, my favorite translation by Mark Musa. These words are cruel. Because the sign ends with the famous line that people know, even if they haven't read the Divine Comedy. In the traditional translations, it was, all hope abandon ye who enter here. Back in my early days of teaching the poem, I was still giving a final exam in that course. And one final exam period when I went in to proctor the exam, some joker had taped the sign in the door of the classroom saying, all hope abandon ye who enter here. Okay, we get it. These words are cruel. And what we are going to see as we move through 34 Cantos of the Inferno are what the U.S. Constitution actually forbids as the phrase is cruel and unusual punishment. The punishments in Dante's Hill 
are cruel, and some of them, as you'll see, are pretty damn unusual as well. Is this justice? The challenge is this. Christianity is supposed to be a religion of love. What about turn the other cheek? What about love thy enemy? What about father forgive them for they know not what they do? Is this a betrayal of that in the, for the sake of sheer vengeance, sheer feelings of revenge? On the other hand, there are references in the New Testament to a hell of eternal torment. And those references come from the mouth of Jesus himself. There aren't many of them. You'd be surprised how few, but they are there. So what is justice and must it involve punishment? There is a secular aspect of this about social order. Is it possible to have social order without the fear of punishment, without punishment as a kind of deterrence? But of course, there's the doctrine of hell, which extends beyond this life, if only to catch those people who escaped justice while they were alive. Is this God's justice? And if so, how can it be reconciled with God's love? And this is the beginning of Dante wrestling with the issue, not just us. And uh, this is going to develop as we go down the inferno, but it won't even end in hell. There will be further aspects of this. Dante will still be struggling with the issue of the justice of certain punishments all the way up to the higher reaches of heaven. And you know, stay tuned, uh, more radio drama, stay tuned to see where this ends up so far as Dante's belief is concerned. Now, we aren't even at this point. We aren't even in hell yet. We are outside the hell. We, we know that because Dante is reading the sign on the gates, and that means by logic that he's not through the gate yet. So where are they? They are in a kind of no man's land. This is one of the most peculiar episodes in the Divine Comedy. The commentators and scholars need a name for it, which Dante does not give, and they will sometimes call it the vestibule, in other words, a kind of a, a waiting room. But it is the vestibule housing a group of people that, again, and according to the name that scholars give them, the vestibule of the uncommitted, people who are being punished because they did not in life commit themselves either to good or to evil. They simply made no decision passively whatsoever. They did not choose the bad. They did not do anything bad. It's just that they didn't actively choose the good either. Now, this is a place where Dante is to some degree inventing. 
Dante uses three sources for the Christian content of his poem. He, of course, uses scripture, but being a Roman Catholic, he also employs the teachings out of church tradition because in Roman Catholicism, the teachings of the church are guaranteed to be as accurate and reliable and uh, uh, necessary as those of Scripture. So he uses the twin Catholic sources of revelation of the Bible and the church. But frankly, he occasionally just makes shit up. And here he does make something up that is not either in the Bible or in Catholic tradition. What is this with the uncommitted? And he elaborates it to the point where it's almost a little bit amusing uh, unintentionally. There are people here who deserve, at one line says they deserve neither praise nor blame. Didn't do good, but they didn't do bad either. So what's going on? If, if that wasn't enough, Dante also invents a third party of angels. This is the only place in the Divine Comedy where angels are included in the punishments. Elsewhere, it's just as normally human beings. But here, there's a third group of angels. Those who did not take a side in the war between the good angels and the bad angels, and Satan was the head of the bad angels, and those got cast into hell and became the devils. Dante makes up a third party of the neutral angels who didn't take a stand. They just sort of stood out the battle and said, we are neutral, we are Switzerland, we're not getting involved. Uh, <laughs> why is this so bad? And it is a place where Dante's personal animosity really comes out. Uh, he refuses, he says, even to name one of these people, lest hell glory over them. At least if you're in hell, he had the initiative to do something, even if it was evil. These people are beneath his contempt. There's an almost personal animosity, and I am probably not the only Dante's, uh, Dante teacher to feel that some of this comes from the bitterness of Dante's political exile from Florence. He took a stand. He committed himself and paid the price for it. That's why these people are being punished. There is one figure who, again, is not named. Dante refuses to name uh, people. But he is referred to as the one who made the great refusal. And many commentators feel that's probably referring allegorically to Pontius Pilate, who tried to wash his hands of the fate of Jesus in the crucifixion, only to learn that it's not quite that easy. But he tried. He abnegated the responsibility to choose good. And why is that so evil? Because not only is it cowardice, but other people suffer. We learn this in wartime. Those who gave in in the Nazi occupation in World 
War II and who tried to escape persecution by collaborating or at least doing nothing. After wartime, these people were prosecuted because you do have a duty to take a stand. As I say, this is not particularly a church teaching, but there is a human element here. And Dante is particularly uh, angry at these people, and they're not even in hell. They're neither, because they were, they didn't commit themselves one way or the other in life. Here, they are neither in hell nor in heaven. They're in a kind of permanent no man's land, a vestibule where the doctor will never see you now. And they pass on, they go past them in contempt, washing their hands of the uncommitted as the uncommitted wash their hands perhaps of the fate of other people, including Christ himself. We will go on with this the next time, and as I say, we will actually enter hell and begin moving a little faster in our narrative. Uh, I hope to uh, see you back again uh, the next time. Thank you.